0: Here's what we could do. What
1: we can do the microphone. One more. Good evening. Uh, I have an announcement about uh, the prison project, which is a loosely organized project of a few people responding to the plight of the people in the prisons around us. And, uh, simply speaking, we're out of books. We're out of the kind of um, vipassana dharma books that people are asking for. And so, um, I'm asking for dharma books. Um, It's easy. I find it easy myself. It takes an act of active imagination to imagine the fate of prisoners around us. And um, I remember one time earlier when I asked for books, I asked people to imagine what kind of book they would want to have if they're in prison and then to perhaps donate such a book. We have uh, a bookcase in the back there and um, another thing is I have a stack of letters mm. for uh, people asking for people interested in dharma to correspond. Mm. So I'll be in the back there uh, after the, the talk and um, pick one up if you'd like to. So please um, help us out with some, some uh, dharma books. For example, there's a group of 25 men that... um, God, I love to speak in front of people. (laughs) There's a group of 25 men who have uh, formed a, a, a sangha who are asking for books that are basically saying, gee, we just feel we'd like to do this, we don't know quite how, can you help us? Things like that, so
2: thank you.
0: Um, I wonder if uh, we could turn on the light so I could see you in in addition to you can see me. I recently read an uh, interview with a concert pianist who said he marveled that people in the audience certainly understood that they could hear him but they didn't seem to think that he could hear them, and then went on to list all the you know, beepers and watches going off and coughing and whispering. And so. Is that
3: all right? Yeah.
0: Well, there's still a little dark lurking over in this corner, but i like to see everyone. Um, <clears throat> I also am, uh, part of what I want to do tonight uh, has to do with uh, some of the Buddhist sacred art that's hanging on the wall. There's a... A Tibetan Tanka of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha and a beautiful large figure of the Bodhisattva of compassion, as she is called in China, Kuan Yin. Yeah, good, thank you. I just want to put in a plug for uh, helping with the prison project. I think um, if we stop and think about it, for those of us who are followers of the the away, we understand that what we're up to is transformation. And this is a way to help transform a prison into a monastery for those prisoners who have such an inclination. And there is beginning to be uh, some growing uh, activity in that direction. So I hope that uh, many of us will respond and, and help the project. Uh, What I want to talk about at a more uh, obvious level tonight has to do with uh, Buddhist sacred art. But what I really want to talk about in terms of what's uh, behind or underneath, or what I might say, has to do with uh, inviting you to think about how do you discover or learn something about uh, ways of being that seem unfamiliar to you. I think one of the ways we learn about ways of being that are unfamiliar to us or that we weren't introduced to or shown as children growing up is to see and know people who are examples. uh, People who demonstrate the qualities of patience, or joy, or kindness, or equanimity, or concentration. There's some expression we have about a picture is worth a thousand words, well embodiment is worth Mm -hmm. countless numbers of words. And I think that the uh, sacred art tradition in Buddhism is one of the uh, vehicles, if you will, for giving us some glimpses, some direct experience of uh, some possibilities. For many people, especially in the United States, uh, who come to Buddhism uh, out of a background in the Jewish tradition, the Buddhist sacred art tradition raises quite a challenge because of course part of one's conditioning growing up as a Jew is not to bow down to false idols. And so there is uh, uh, a kind of heat around uh, this whole discussion of images and I want to uh, say a little something about that because I think uh, I think there is a way in which uh, one can honor that admonition that one grew up with and still enjoy and benefit from paintings and figures and images of all sorts of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. In the Buddhist tradition, these images are meant to be a way of articulating the potential that exists in each one of us. So when we have, uh, for example, this figure of Kuan Yin there in the back wall, this is uh, a figure which is designed to help us remember about the possibility of compassion and the uh, potential for that quality of mind, of heart, That every one of us possesses. We may not have learned so much about how to cultivate that quality, but this figure of Kuan Yin is there to help us remember that we have this potential within us, as do uh, the people sitting on either side of us. I had uh, an experience yesterday that really brought this up for me. I brought these uh, four uh, figures here uh, that are in front of me, all dressed up. (laughs) Uh, As some of you know, I periodically during the year do a ceremony for uh, children who have died, those who have died before they're born through miscarriage or abortion, those who die at birth, those babies that die from SIDS, from Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, particularly up until a child is a year or so, and certainly before a child is born, if there is a dying, no matter what the cause, we don't have any container in our culture for attending to the experience of that time. And this particular ceremony, which is actually a very traditional memorial ceremony, but adapted in Japan in particular, uh, seems to help people. And uh, one of the uh, (coughs) consistent experiences that I have is that when people see a collection of images of compassion, Specifically, images of that quality of compassion, which is about protection and nurturance. They know what they're seeing, even if they never saw a Buddha or a Bodhisattva before. That the images seem to be uh, somehow archetypal, even for us here in the West. I actually use uh, compassion images from uh, traditions not just from Buddhism but from other faith traditions. Uh, One of the figures I brought this evening is actually uh, carved by the Eskimo people who believe that the spirit enters and leaves through a very round opening the mouth. So this particular figure has its mouth in this round, oval shape, and then there's another face inside the mouth. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, this is... Uh, the, the Bodhisattva in Japan is called Jizo. Uh, and he is uh, described as that uh, carrier or emanation of protective and nurturing and compassion. And he's who is called upon when one is traveling into life, when one is traveling out of life. So when I saw this Eskimo piece, I thought, oh, this is the Eskimo version. The figure that's at the uh, far right end uh, is uh, Jizo, sometimes in Sanskrit uh, called uh, Shittigarbha, the Earth Store Bodhisattva. In Japan, the Earth Store Bodhisattva is uh, kind of blended with Jizo with a certain amount of folk religion. So there are lots and lots of folk tales and myths about Jizo. Jizo is uh, typically depicted as a shaved-headed monk, often with a begging staff and sometimes holding in one hand a jewel uh, that represents clear intention or the wish-fulfilling gem. And he is said to be the uh, compassionate being that you call upon to help uh, those who've died so they don't get lost on the way to what I suppose is some form of Buddhist heaven, the Western realm. But he's also called upon uh, at a certain point uh, in the pregnancy to protect the spirit of uh, life force of a baby until the child is born and for some time after that. And there are little shrine houses in neighborhoods, in cities and villages all over Japan with Jizo in them. And they have come to be associated with children. So there are sometimes children's festivals. But really Jizo is about coming and going. One of the things that interests me so much is that when I show someone a figure or a painting of Jesus, they know immediately what he's about. He's about this quality of being present during this most difficult time when we are entering into life and when we're passing out of life. At the end of the uh, Second World War, during the Uh, American occupation of Japan, abortion became legal again after having been illegal for a long, long time. And uh, became and still is uh, significantly the major means of birth control in Japan. And so there is a lot of uh, use of abortion because of that. And there came to be within a few years after the war a kind of grassroots um, request, really, mostly from women, but not entirely, uh, for some ceremony that would help them uh, with the consequences of many abortions. It's not unusual for a <coughs> woman to, by the time she reaches menopause, to have had twelve or thirteen or fourteen abortions. And there's a lot of suffering that goes as a result of that.
3: So Jizō
0: began to be depicted holding babies, having babies coming out of his sleeves, having them clustered around his feet. Some years ago I actually went on a two-month walking pilgrimage, and I went from one Jizō shrine to another. I just wanted to find out as much as I could about Jizō. And I was completely amazed at what I saw. (coughs) I sometimes would sit in a particular shrine for a day or two and just watch people come and go and see what they would do. And they would do the kinds of things that you see on these figures. They would bring a hat that they had made or a bib or a cape or a McDonald's hamburger or a can of soda pop or some toys as offerings. And they would say some prayers, they would light some incense, they would sit for a while, and then they would go away. So when I make an altar, like I did yesterday, and I have images of Jizo and of Kuan Yin, or as uh, the Compassion Bodhisattva is known in Japan, or of the Virgin Mary. I have uh, what I call the uh, Juno Jizo, a wonderful rock one of my students found on Mount Juno that looks like Jizo, only it's just, you know, it's a rock (coughs) who sits on a stone meditation cushion. And whoever happens to come to do the ceremony looks at these figures and they have some encouragement and inspiration for generating this quality of protecting protective nurturance within themselves. So what happens in the ceremony is the process of calling upon whatever forms of compassion particularly um, compassionate and protective nurturance that we know of and that we can sense from the world around us, seen and not seen, form and formless, but also some possibility of awakening that quality of the heart or of the mind from within ourselves. I also brought this uh, painting of white Tara. She is much beloved, uh, particularly among the Tibetans. I'm quite fond of her because uh, the story goes that when Tara was about to be enlightened, she was told that she would surely be enlightened in this next lifetime. And so she certainly could choose to be reborn as a man because that would be the way in which she could be most easily be enlightened and she is celebrated for saying no thank you I will be enlightened as a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In this particular form um, she comes in different colors and postures and in the white form cross-legged with her uh, right hand in the gesture of generosity and her left hand in the gesture of all is well, don't be afraid. She's a symbol of uh, long life, of peace, of well-being. She's always depicted as a sixteen-year-old virgin with her blouse above her breasts, so there's no question about her uh, delicious delectability and yet her purity (laughs) Over and over again, when I show people pictures or images of Tara, or um, sometimes of the Medicine Buddha, who uh, also sometimes is shown with these two hand gestures of generosity and all is well, particularly for people who are frightened, just the image can be very helpful. When you wake up in the middle of the night and turn on the light and feel anxious or afraid to see some image with those hand gestures can be just the reminder that you need to remember that you have the capacity to comfort yourself and to call upon those qualities from outside of ourselves for comfort and silence. I have one friend who one time during a retreat was having a particularly hard time because her inner judge was being especially harsh. And in this particular retreat, this judging voice began to manifest in form in her mind as a kind of stormtrooper type. So I suggested to her that she go and look around the Tara altar and see if she might find an image or a picture that would help her remember about the possibility of kindness. So she found a particular uh, statue that we have of Tara. And she said, when I look at this face, I can begin to allow myself to remember compassion. So much to her surprise I encouraged her to take the uh, statue and put it on a table near her seat in the meditation hall. And for the next uh, six or seven days she just kept looking at the face. She just kept looking at the hand postures of generosity, and of all as well. And she began to believe that it was possible that there is this quality in the world that she doesn't know enough about. At one point she said she could actually imagine letting herself be held by Tara. She could put her head in Tara's lap. And of course what was most important of all was that (coughs) she could then slowly be willing to take Tara's example in the way she would treat herself. Because of course the bottom line is that what we're really doing is discovering ways of training the mind that subtle mind which resides, some say, in the heart chakra, not in the brain. We're the ones who make a separation in English between heart and mind. But there are many languages in, uh, in Asia where the word for mind and heart is the same. So uh, I bring these images and I want to call your attention to the usefulness of the sacred art tradition in Buddhism because these images can help us be reminded about some possibilities for training our own mind stream for certain characteristics or qualities that we may not have been exposed to as much as we need to be particularly those qualities of ease, of joy, of kindness, of gentleness, of presence, of concentration, of wisdom. We need as many reminders as we can allow ourselves to have. One of the ways I know what people's responses are to uh, these compassion figures in uh, the ceremony that we do for children who have died is by looking at the things that people have made. If you come up later and look at the hat on Jesus' head, with a little prayer stuck in the tie that holds the hat on his head. Mm -hmm. It's made with such care. Even people who don't sew very well somehow make something that is so tender and dear. This time somebody made a pair of oversized booties filled with prayers. The Eskimo uh, figure has so many bibs on that you can hardly see his face. Underneath he has a kind of yogic sash with fringe carefully embroidered all the way around. The person who made it spent a couple of
3: hours making it with such attention and care.
0: Uh, Jizō is commonly used as a grave marker in graveyards in Japan. And I remember the first time I went to a graveyard on uh, Mount Koya, I was just amazed because it was such a joyful place. Almost all the figures of Jizō had hats, and traveling capes, and bibs, picnic baskets, and there were throughout the graveyard families having picnics, gathering in remembrance of someone they loved. We don't have that relationship with graveyards, do we? We could. But I think we have to change some of the images. I think if you go to very old cemeteries, you will often find some of what I'm talking about. One of the most beautiful collections of uh, images used in association with remembrance in graveyards is uh, actually a collection of uh, grave markers from Jewish cemeteries. So beautifully carved. Portraits of people that are buried in the cemetery. There's a wonderful book uh, called Permanent Residence. It's about graveyards in New York, filled with pictures of uh, gravestones, grave markers, so lovingly carved. The kind of attention that we put into making something in remembrance of someone we knew, one way or another, who lived and who has died. It doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't have to be wonderfully carved, but when we do something with our hands that comes from our heart, we express something that takes form and becomes visible, and can be inspiring to others. Some years ago, some of you may have gone to the museum and seen the exhibit called Wisdom and Compassion. I know some people who went to the exhibit and say that they became Buddhists because of their experience seeing these extraordinarily beautiful paintings and bronzes, mostly. If we will be open, we can be inspired by this great sacred art tradition. And we can learn something about some ways of being that we all have a capacity for. So for those of you who come here, please enjoy what Kuan Yin can teach you about compassion. And please look at that picture of Shakyamuni Buddha that's uh, that's hanging on the wall with the scenes of his life around the central piece, central image. It's a very, very beautiful painting, and a reminder that the Buddha was a human being, like all of us are. I remember a few years ago, I went to, uh, I went to Europe for the first time. And um, a little bit by accident, I uh, went to a museum, some of you may know, in uh, Paris called the Gime, it's filled with an extraordinary collection of uh, Buddhist art from throughout most of Asia, but a particularly remarkable collection of things from Japan. (laughs) And at the time that I was there, there was a a collection of pieces by a quite famous sculptor in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition um, named Zanabazar. Any of you who saw the recent exhibit of Mongolian sacred art saw some of Xanobazaar's pieces. He must have been a great practitioner. He was a great artist, but he had to be more than that to have made the figures he made. And There was one uh, figure that was in the middle of the main room that I, I saw, it was the first thing I saw when I walked into the museum. And after that, every day, I went uh, once or twice or three times a day to see this one figure. I couldn't stay away from it. It was in the uh, Tibetan tradition, an image of one of the Bodhisattvas with consort. And the two uh, figures are gazing at each other. And the female figure has her arms behind the male's head. The back of his neck. And the gesture of her hands told me more about ease than anything I have ever read about. I kept going back and looking at her hands. And what she taught me, what her hands taught me was about ease. Very awake hands but also so relaxed. I remember very clearly uh, the exhibit of Indonesian art that had one uh, big, almost life-size carving of a monk sitting in (coughs) meditation. That one image said so much about the quality of presence and concentration that one can cultivate in meditation. Most of what uh, has informed my love of Buddhist sacred art has been in the formal, um, traditional modes. But also there are now beginning to be some uh, Western practitioners we're finding ways of expressing some of these qualities of mind in our own idiom. I have one friend who has for years been painting emptiness. And at one level it looks like paintings of a lace tablecloth with some fruit on the table or an open window. But she's also captured something about interconnectedness. So wonderful to see that uh, sense of cultivation and understanding of what the Buddhist path is about expressed in our own imaging and forms. But of course we all think that uh, this is the work of artists. It's really the work of practitioners. So I hope that you will feel invited to look at sacred art in terms of what you can be taught, but also that you will let yourselves make some small creations of one sort or another and see what uh, comes out of you. You may be surprised. You may be surprised. One of the things that was so interesting to me after our uh, ceremony yesterday was that, um, something that I, I know actually from other situations, how often when we think about calling for compassion for some, someone who's died, for example, we forget to include ourselves. So I also want you to look at these figures as uh, speaking to us about ways of being with ourselves. Ways of being with whatever arises in our mind. Even those things that arise, those thoughts or attitudes or uh, emotions that we have trouble being tender and gentle with. The template relationship in Buddhism is that of a mother with her only newborn child. And I've talked about this before when I've been here, but I keep talking about it because I think it's so important. How many of us think of holding our anger or our fear or our anxiety in the way these bodhisattvas are holding these babies? We need reminders, that that's possible to do. So, I wonder if there are some things that you would like to talk about, or have some discussion about. It doesn't have to be on this theme. It can be whatever is up for any of you. Yes.
1: Um, I've always been accused of being in my mind, and what you just said, maybe I'm not so wrong.
0: <laughs> 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 well, I do think that there is a kind of uh, mental activity where we actually have the experience of a lot of energy up in our head. That's very different from what happens when our energy is here. So, you know, the, the uh, articulation of mind as residing here in the heart chakra Chakra is in particular subtle mind, the mind that is being cultivated when we do the various practices that we're engaged in. Not all that busy discursive thinking. Yes. Um, I was curious when you say to
3: hold your anger or your fear or your anxiety. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. My sister just had um, uh, twin boys, and I was over at her house, and I held those babies for a really long period of time because
3: they're they're, well, they're premature, and it takes a long time to feed them about an hour and a half per child because they want to just have a little bit at a time, and then they go to sleep, and then and I, I mean, it's really a precious experience.
0: So I'm not totally understanding, um, because to me, anger and fear and anxiety are not precious like a newborn child.
3: And when you say, hold that, could you be a little more explicit? I'm curious, because it would be a wonderful tool.
0: Well, if we meet anger, for example, with aversion, we're just heaping aversion on aversion. But imagine just holding, not clasping, but just allowing to reside in the hands of the heart. That emotional state of anger and the sensations that go with it as we breathe in and breathe out. Not uh, feeding it in the sense of keeping it pumped up with telling stories, and do you know what he did to me, and all that stuff that harbors ill will, as the precept says. But being with, that quality of noticing, of bringing awareness to the actual emotional state that is arising in any given moment. When we do that, what we begin to discover is that it doesn't last. It rises and falls, it rises and falls. Our emotional states are constantly changing. And of course the paradox is that when we turn towards what is so difficult to be with, we discover our capacity for more spaciousness. We don't find that spaciousness out of aversion, out of ugh. I hate that. Mm-hmm. Judging ourselves for, oh, I'm such a bad person for being angry. I'm just heaping more suffering. Well, that's not my work. That's their work. My work is to attend to my response to someone else's anger which may be more anger or fear or puzzlement because my friend or this other person anyway is having a hard time. I mean there's a whole range of possibilities and some of those, the range of possibilities aren't accessible to me if my mind is constricted but they are accessible to me if my mind has some spaciousness which is why All the practices that are about the cultivation of our capacity to observe are so important. That quality of observing is what spawns or breeds more spaciousness. But there's also something else about the relationship of a mother with her only newborn child, which is that she's not an expert. She's never done this before. She's new at it. So she has a kind of attention, a kind of vigilance, a kind of energy, a kind of curiosity, maybe even a little nervousness because she's never done it before. Some of us treat our anger like some old hated but familiar enemy. You know, there's in the, in the Buddhist psychology, text, this, uh, this possibility of treating each moment, each thing, each relationship, each situation mm-hmm. as though for the first time. Kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? But that's the possibility. And to imagine that we can begin to cultivate a mind that has that kind of graciousness, gentleness, kindness towards what arises in our mind stream that we turn away from, that we reject, is the beginning of liberation because we're not caught by those emotional states or those states of mind that are so disturbed when we can do that. It's quite revolutionary. To hold anger or fear with the tenderness of a mother with her only newborn child. Wow. But you know, a lot of you did the Metta retreat recently. Do you all remember that Metta has to do with what arises in your own mind stream? Oh, that's different. (laughs) That's just the part of me I hate.
2: (laughs) It's it's called stuck.
0: (laughs) I'm really, uh, I've been fascinated for some long time now by how much this relationship is what keeps getting referenced throughout the Buddhist tradition. It's very interesting and it's hard for those of us who grew up with mothers who weren't very good at being mothers Mm -hmm. but it's possible you know I'm also reminded uh, with what you're bringing up um, one of my teachers used to uh, talk a lot about um, this uh, Koan or Zen story uh, about sun-faced Buddhas, moon-faced Buddhas. and he used to talk a lot about when you're cold be cold and when you're hot be hot. Very much about being with oneself as one is. Not feeding it, not, not especially if the way one is is upset, but if I'm upset, not saying, I'm not upset, I'm very calm, I'm a Zen student. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a self-deception. It doesn't work. <clears throat> the only way I can be with myself if I'm upset is to be willing to acknowledge that in this moment, what is arising is upset. easy to say, it's not so easy to do.
3: Yes. I'm glad you mentioned the contemporary uh, approach to sacred art, because sometimes I have felt that it's, um, when people uh, relate to traditional sacred art, that it actually is putting them to sleep, rather than awakening them because it becomes a cliché, it becomes something they don't really see. And so sometimes, for example, I'm thinking of one artist um, who has painted Buddhist material for 25 years that's actually very hard to look at. It's really painful, but it really wakes you up. And it feels like if everything becomes You know, it's almost like uh, what Edward Said writes about, the orientalizing. So we think, aren't they charming? Or isn't that peaceful? Or isn't that beautiful? And it doesn't serve to wake us. So I feel that we really do need to cultivate a Western Mm -hmm. um, art. And, you know, I agree with you that it's in that emptiness painting or in Vermeer. Or in many, many places.
0: Well, I think Vermeer is a very good example. Yeah, I mean, Vermeer's for any of you example. who had the good fortune to see the Vermeer exhibit, it was just so staggering <laughs> yes. to walk into the museum and have it be so still. People were just... It was completely a, a, a sacred space. And it was the effect <laughs> of that work, which is completely about being present. Um, I have a painting in our meditation room which uh, an artist I, whose work I admire a lot did of a hummingbird in the midst of a very dark field. The hummingbird has some uh, Venetian yellow and a little bit of gold on it, but it's completely a hummingbird in that moment of flight. And it's so much about light and about presence. But it's not in any way using any of the traditional forms. I almost brought a painting, I I just... I guess I got lazy and had enough stuff in my arms already. But I almost brought a painting that the same artist did a watercolor of five finches on a branch. But, it, you know, finches don't hang around on the branches very long. They're <laughs> busy all over the place. So it's just that sense of a moment, and very much mm-hmm. about the relationship among the, the five birds. And it really has that effect of kind of waking you up. It's like, oh. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And, you know, not all of the sacred art tradition, even within the tradition, is uh, initially soothing. That's particularly true in the Tibetan tradition, where uh, uh, unhappy states of mind get depicted so graphically. They make Bruegel look like a Sunday picnic. (laughs) But when you begin to have enough training about what you're looking at, you begin to realize, these are pictures that are telling me that there isn't anything that cannot be transformed to wisdom and compassion. And I find that very inspiring. So part of looking at the art tradition takes a certain amount of educating about what it is we're looking at. Because of course it does come out of a different context. And I know for myself not all of the images are a work. I think some of them really are archetypal and some of them are more culture specific. And that's where we have to trust our response. Yes? Speak a little louder.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, the uh, electrician at the Asian Art Museum told me a wonderful story. (laughs) Um, In the Wisdom and Compassion exhibit, there was a big uh, mandala of the medicine. It was the Medicine Buddha mandala. Uh, a number of, of, of small uh, bronzes. So was the Medicine Buddha and various circles of protectors and guardians, etc. All together, I don't know, a hundred pieces on this big raised platform. And they had lights shining down on the uh, mandala. And he said, you know, I've been working here for, I don't know, 25 years or something, he said, I've never had this experience before. Those light bulbs, I keep having to replace them. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here? And he was just dying to see what was happening underneath on the cloth after the exhibit was dismantled, because he said, they're just soaking up my light ball. <laughs> but when I, I went and, and, and sat with that particular uh, mandala a lot, and I had exactly the same experience you're describing. It's like walking into an energy field. So it's not just artistic ability. It has something to do with the artist also being a practitioner. Yes?
1: To the dead there's uh, considerable imagery of uh, demonic sort of uh, beings mm-hmm. because you're supposed to embrace them as part of the
2: ritual of death that uh, the artwork is
1: designed to scare the hell out of you but at the same time you're supposed to be able to embrace it and say these are the fears that we have sure. and we embrace them and to, by, by accepting them uh, we are liberated. We are free of them. And this is part of the, you're talking about this bit of artwork, and that's, I mean, it made me think of that as, as a lot of the, the art artistry in the Tibetan movement of the Dead was imagery, and then also the mass, the death mass that they wear for the funerary uh, procedures mm-hmm. are all designed to enhance the person's ability to face whatever demons they have, their personal demons, and to dispel them.
0: But that's really what I'm talking about when I say, let's hold the demon at the heart chakra with the tenderness of a mother with her only newborn child. It's called making friends with whatever arises. Whatever. Not just the nice, pretty faces or energies or states of mind. That's that's our work.
1: Yes. I don't know why, but suddenly you don't
0: say anything about it to you. You mean a terrible tune. <laughs> well, by that time they're wiggling off your lap, you know I mean?
1: So, uh, but then, and then at the broader side of it, behind you I'm looking at the Dalai Lama and I'm thinking about what he must feel about all the things that are happening in Tibet and, you know, around the world and all the people in Bosnia and everything else. And when you start looking at that and trying to embrace that.
0: But you know But this is what I mean when I say part of our path is allowing ourselves to be inspired by examples. The first time I took teachings from His Holiness um, was in 1985 in Bodgaya and there were uh, said to have been 200,000 people gathered in this little, village in North India, 30,000 of them being Tibetans, mostly from Tibet. they come whatever way they could out of Tibet for these teachings, and we're going to go back. And the teachings he was giving were on the uh, text by Deva where the basic... Uh, the thrust of the teachings is to treat your enemy, your so-called enemy, as your teacher. Because who else will give you such a great opportunity for cultivating patience and (laughs) all of these qualities of the mind? It's easy with your friend, but your so-called enemy. And he was teaching to the Tibetans about how he wanted them to treat those in power the Chinese in power in Tibet when they went home. He was speaking to people who had gone through two famines for the first time in the history of the Tibetans. He was speaking to mothers who had scars on their fingers from cutting their fingers to put some blood in hot water to keep their babies alive during the famines. He was speaking to people who had been imprisoned and tortured. He was speaking to people under extraordinary circumstances. And what I simply I would I couldn't believe was this enormous group of people listening carefully and saying, Yes, this is our practice. And he himself has said on a number of occasions, I do not hate the Chinese. He has talked about his concern for some of the Chinese who have done things that have been very harmful because of the effect of those actions on their own mind stream. It's remarkable. Hard to believe. And of course what makes him even more believable is that he doesn't say, oh I don't ever get angry, but he said I don't get angry very much, and when I get angry it doesn't last very long. Oh, that somehow is very helpful to me, because maybe I could imagine that degree of cultivation eventually. (coughs) Very hard to imagine. But we live in a world in which our challenge is to imagine the unimaginable. Because that's our challenge. Because of the nature of the suffering in the world that we live in. We have both great opportunity and uh, the possibility of ending our world. And we're right on that cusp. And if we keep practicing fear we won't be developing the qualities of the mind that will allow us to cultivate the possibilities. And I don't know any way to practice uh, those wholesome states of mind if I don't include a different way of being with fear or anger or whatever the hot negative emotion of the moment happens to be. I have to include those arisings in myself, if I'm going to find a way to have a different kind of relationship to those arisings in others. I do think the Buddha was right, that hate is not conquered by more hate. And every once in a while, you know, there's some remarkable person who does something, and we all think, oh my goodness. I mean, I'm still reeling from the man whose factory in New England burned down, and he didn't relocate in the Philippines. He said to his employees, you'll still get your paychecks and your health benefits, and we'll rebuild the factory as soon as we can and all of his customers sent money to help. That's a Bodhisattva in New England. Now. It's wonderful that there are people like this around us. Some of them are not particularly visible. I mean I think we all have experiences of being touched by some kindness from somebody you know like the person who's doing checking out the groceries in the grocery store that person is is kindly it just it, it has such an effect it's wonderful I have a couple of favorite toll-takers on the Golden Gate Bridge who are definitely candidates. <laughs> <laughs> One woman just on her hairstyle alone makes <laughs> life <light up. laughs> you know, is, She is up and she is here. Hello. <laughs> it's wonderful. Oh, really wonderful.
2: <laughs> That's art. <laughs> In the
0: best sense. Right? It's not what happens in museums, except, you know, sometimes. (coughs) So, you know, in a way, what you're asking is, again, I think right on the mark, what about the two-year-old? Well, our anger is like the two-year-old. Bring him back when he's six and been, you know, trained. I used to say when my kids were little, Why can't kids arrive like guinea pigs, you know, fully clothed, and they know how to eat? But I wouldn't trade all those years of, you know, mush strewn all over the room for anything. Although there were times at the moment when I wasn't so sure. I want to recommend that those of you who haven't seen Babe on a big screen, go do it. It's completely about kindness and courtesy and respect. We have a Tibetan monk who's living with us for a few months, Months, and we took him at my son's suggestion on Friday night. And it was just great. He was right in the edge of his seat, like, the entire movie. And at the end of the movie, you know, the three of us are there with the tears coming down our faces. It was great. <laughs> Just amazed, you know, and the movie was close, but it wasn't sentimental. It was a very strong pitch for common courtesy Mm -hmm. the practice of common courtesy. Will the three female sheep with collars on step out of the room? Next time someone cuts in front of you when you're out driving, thank you. A little bow. That's
2: great.
0: This is our Dharma practice, you know, more than even what we do on our cushions. Excuse me for saying so, but it's in our daily lives, it's in the detail of my state of mind when I get up in the morning. And I growl at the dog, or I say, oh, good morning. Did you sleep well? Mm -hmm. Makes the whole difference in one's day. If you bark at the dog, or you greet the dog, or your husband, or your child. (laughs) My dog and I are up before anybody else in our house, so the way I talk to the dog sort of sets the day. It took me a long time to realize that. If I speak well to the dog, my day is great. If I forget and say,
2: ah. it doesn't
0: go so well. So, please take good care of your mind stream because if you don't, nobody else is going to. Don't worry about anybody else's, that's their job. And enjoy what inspires you and it you see as beautiful. It really makes a big difference. Thank you very much.